0: and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for Tea. Welcome to the conversation. Hello everyone and welcome to this week's episode of 2 for Tea. I'm going to be your sole host today. Um, I'm coming to you from Buenos Aires and my guest today is Geeta Jessinghani. She is a learning and organizational behavioral consultant specializing in behavioral skill trainings and diversity and inclusion initiatives. Geeta's areas of work include gender diversity initiatives, prevention of workplace sexual harassment, and the development of women leaders in corporate India. Gita is also a science and sci fi enthusiast. She is an uber-geek who is interested in behavioral science, social psychology, whodunits, forensic science, biology, and market research. And she is an opinionated atheist and skeptic, and she lives in Bombay. And full disclosure, I have met Geeta in person uh, on a number of very, very enjoyable occasions. Welcome, Geeta. It's so lovely to speak to you.
1: Hi, Ayona. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. It is an absolute pleasure and an even bigger pleasure to catch up with you again.
0: Thank you. Um, So I'd like to start by asking you about the kind of work that you do. Um, And in particular, we're going to focus a lot on gender relations, Me Too, sexual harassment, and that topic of conversation in this podcast. So perhaps you could Talk to me a bit about the kinds of sexual harassment trainings you do and the kinds of situations within workplaces that you are trying to prevent and the kind of atmosphere you're trying to foster and what your tools are for doing that as a trainer. Okay.
1: So as you mentioned in my introduction, I do trainings. I do uh, mostly sensitization and behavioral trainings in the areas of communication, leadership, diversity. And a part of that is fostering respectful workplaces, which includes the prevention of sexual harassment in the workplace. So the kind of trainings range from simple and basic knowledge sessions, which Uh, educate employees about what the law says about workplace sexual harassment, what are acceptable and unacceptable behaviors in the workplace, what are penalties for transgressing those behaviors, what is uh, the process of redressal in case uh, sexual harassment occurs, and what are recourses that are open open to people in those cases. So that's just one part of it. The other part, and in my opinion, the more important part is having conversations with people to understand why some of these gendered behaviors occur, why some of these become sexual harassment, and what can employees do themselves to make sure that their workplaces are inclusive to everybody who works there, are are not just dictated by the dominant or the majority workforce, which in India is to an extremely large extent still males.
0: Mm, Yes, only 5% of Indian women, I discovered, work at regular salaried jobs. Yes, that is if you uh,
1: look at the entire uh, population, which in our case is a sizable population. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) But even if you look at... uh, The smaller section, which is urban, educated, uh, middle class or affluent India, even there, the gender participation rates are uh, very much on the lower side. I think maybe 10 to 15 percent when uh, I talk to companies, if they have a gender ratio, an overall gender ratio of 25 to 30 percent, they're doing pretty well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I was saying that even that overall participation ratio mostly is at entry or lower management levels. The higher and the more senior you go, that ratio drops uh, drastically.
0: So what are the kind of situations that you see happening, the kinds of things that people are complaining about or wanting to change?
1: So there are... they're quite uh, universal in a lot of ways. They, they span the gamut of inappropriate behavior in terms of language, in terms of nonverbal communication, in terms of inappropriate messaging and uh, those kinds of things. Uh, all the way so all that which constitutes a hostile work environment and all the way to what we refer to as the more serious or the more heinous uh, acts of uh, workplace sexual harassment which are quid pro quo which include uh, things like coercion uh for sexual favors or enticement for sexual favors and even
0: sexual assault and rape yeah do you think that there are some specifically indian behaviors which people can Kind of get away with in that culture, which would not would just not fly in the West? the details of those specific behaviors, yes, absolutely. although um,
1: the way I understand it, inappropriate behaviors are deemed inappropriate by measure of the culture that they operate in, but uh, mm-hmm. specifically mm-hmm. within the Indian uh, environment. and in fact, this is often a cause of cultural confusion and offense is things that are considered perfectly okay here, but are not in other cultures. I remember being involved in a case where there was a lady visiting from, I think, the UK, uh, a fairly senior lady. She was visiting her the company here in India. And she was being taken around on a sightseeing trip with a few other uh, employees of the company, which included a person who was sitting right next to her in the car, And once that trip was over, her sightseeing trip, she came back and she spoke to uh, the senior people in the company and said, uh, you know what? I think I want to file a complaint of sexual harassment, but I may have misunderstood cultural implications, so I don't know what to do. Maybe explain this person's behavior to me. So everyone was, of course, deeply concerned. And oh, my God, what happened? And she said, this gentleman who was sitting right next to me Kept touching my knee all the time in the car. And mm. it was extremely off putting and offensive. And I couldn't understand what was his point. It just seemed so random. Uh, he just kept touching my knee. So the person that she was talking about was a person that was uh, local to Bombay. Now, I don't know if you remember from your own time in Bombay, but people here have this really odd habit that they develop, which is that if you're in close quarters with another person and you happen to accidentally touch them, their instinctive response is to apologize by touching them uh, very briefly and then moving their hand to their chest as a nonverbal apology. Oh, yes. the The etiquette, of course, is that you say the words and you say, oh, sorry, or whatever it is in the local language as well. But people kind of shorthand that into, oh, I brushed against your knee. I will just touch your knee and put my hand on my chest. And you understand that that was my apology.
0: Mm. So that's what he was doing?
1: That is absolutely what he was doing. There were, there were three of them sitting in the uh, car in the back. And every time the car uh, took a turn... Uh, he would brush up a little bit against her. And since that was not okay, he would apologize by touching her knee. Uh-huh.
0: <laughs> um, well, I'm glad he didn't accidentally brush up against her boob or something. <laughs> it <laughs> could have gone very awkward. <laughs> <got> very awkward.
1: <laughs> but those are the kind of things that uh, women in India would uh, definitely not object to. And even if they did not like it, they would they wouldn't... Consider it as sexual harassment. They would tell the person, "Hey, it's okay. You don't need to touch me all the
0: time. I understand." But are there some situations which you think are more? I mean, tell me about some of the complaints that you that you hear from women, um, in offices. So the more genuine complaints, rather than these kinds of misunderstandings. Let's start from there. Yeah, I think the majority of
1: complaints that at least I have heard. Uh, have all been around some kind of persistent stalkerish inappropriate behavior sometimes the stalking has been literal sometimes it's been more related to uh, persistent offers to drop the person back home or to go out for a coffee or those kinds of things but that has been the the bulk of the cases that i've been involved in there have been others which have included somewhat more serious uh, uh, complaints as well including um, Uh, assault uh, sometimes um, uh, a quid pro quo uh, kind of uh, gesture but the bulk of them have been this uh, insistence on going out with the guy and Mm. there has been absolutely no testing of waters of attraction of any sort (laughs) yeah Um, right (laughs) It has literally been, uh, I'm a guy who works here. You're a woman who works here. I think I will just ask you out. And sometimes I won't even do it in a clear, uh, precise manner of saying, hey, I would like to go out with you. It's just been, why don't you come for a coffee with me? Why don't I drop you home? Why don't uh, you stay back? If you get late, I will take you home. Why don't you go here? Why don't we go here together? I'm going for a client meeting. Why don't you come with me? That kind of thing.
0: Uh, that would definitely be considered creepy i would say
1: yes so uh it is that and um and it's it's important to kind of uh, keep in mind that in this area like everything else we in india we continue to very chaotically exist amidst extremes whether it's extremes of poverty and affluence side by side Or serious gender discrimination to the extent of female feticide, along with very progressive gender positive policies, or it's literal segregated uh, institutions, gender segregated institutions and uh, social spaces versus fully liberated urban women who make all the choices that are possibly available to them. Uh, we are still trying to navigate our way through these extremes.
0: Yeah. It's like a culture shock within a country. Yes. Um, you know, it's not just the kind of culture shock of when you move from one culture to another and you have an adjustment to make and you have, um, you know, you end up communicating at cross purposes with people. Mm-hmm. You find your expectations aren't met. You find that you aren't baffled as to how to behave. hmm I feel as though in India you have that within the country itself because people's experiences within India are so diverse.
1: And uh, that's not even taking into account the standardized uh, uh, culture differences. So I'm not even talking about urban-rural. I'm not talking about uh, geographical. I'm not talking about caste-based or class-based. It's just literally the culture that exists in my house and the culture that exists in my literal next-door neighbor's house can span a few decades and a few geographies.
0: A few centuries, maybe. <laughs> I, I'll i have to agree with that. Quite possibly. I mean, the culture within my the Parsi friends who I had, who were incredibly were the most kind of liberal, progressive extreme of Indian society, I would say probably. And when I was staying at the Parsi Daramsala hostel, and I went, I um, just to give one example, I um, I went to the um, Dongarwadi, which is the for those who are not familiar, it's the the area of ground where the Towers of Silence are situated in Bombay. So it's a big park it's like a funerary gardens for Zoroastrians and um at the top of this uh wooded hill are the towers of silence where they lay out the bodies traditionally to be eaten by vultures although now it's they're partially eaten and partially desiccated uh by solar panels and things and then chopped and um and uh they allow the bones to the bones are buried um but I had I had visited that place and um, I arrived back and they saw that I was wearing white, as you have to when you go to a funeral, and they immediately barred my way and hustled me straight from the door and into the mm. shower room, fully dressed, with my shoes on, even carrying my handbag, because... because um the place is considered unclean because it's the place where you have funerals and therefore oh, wow. I needed to completely wash everything before I would be allowed to go across the threshold of right. my bedroom so I didn't even have a towel or anything else with me I just had to they literally made me get underneath the shower fully dressed holding my handbag in my shoes and and everything else. Oh my god! Um, so that kind of attitude, um, that that is <laughs> so, um, you know, there's such a gulf between those those kinds of attitudes, and they're both really common, and it's very difficult to tell, um, in advance, what you're going to encounter. Yes. What level of religiosity conservatism? Etc. You are going to encounter.
1: Yes, it's. Uh, I think it's difficult uh, for an for an outsider. I think uh, for those of us who live here, I think our uh, cue, we fine tune our you know, our picking up of the cues so much mm-hmm. that I think we don't really consciously think about it. But definitely for if you're new to a place and that would apply uh, to us if we go to a new place. We're not. And a lot of these examples we're talking about are all Bombay, which is I I would argue is, you know, pretty much the most liberal city in India to live in. Mm. And definitely in terms of um, gender safety and, you know, gender positive uh, uh, experiences. But you move away to any other city, and it's a whole different story. And like you said, in so many places, a whole different century.
0: Mm, yes, and I do remember I was uh, I um I had very bad menstrual cramps, and I was sitting with some Indian friends of mine, and I mentioned this to them, and they were very um, liberal, progressive, relaxed types, and mm-hmm. all the men just like did this double take that I mentioned mm-hmm. this fact, they all sort mm-hmm. of cringed back in their chairs in shock. <laughs> like, <gasps> yes, oh yes. my God, <laughs> that would not have happened in the, w- in the West. Um,
1: I, I would imagine not. It is just not something that anyone brings up openly anywhere at all. Mm, mm. (laughs) menstruation is just something that only women know about and keep it completely on the down
0: low so i want to go back to the idea of the trainings Mm -hmm. so i have never taken part in a sexual harassment or gender sensitization training Mm -hmm. so could you tell me what what it's like to be a participant in that Um, Are there role-playing exercises? Is it just giving information?
1: I don't personally uh, do the role-playing exercises, although those are a fairly uh, credible way of uh, uh, making the point, and some people do them. I personally don't do them because they tend to turn the sessions a little bit gimmicky, and Mm -hmm. uh, their effect is temporal. So they stay with them for a very short period, and then it's hard for them to internalize it. I find that uh, giving them the space for conversations, including the space for saying all the non-politically correct things that they want to say, that helps the most.
0: Mm. Yes, I'm sure that
1: helps. That absolutely does. I remember one uh, training, for example, where Uh, We were talking about how inappropriate comments are made about the way women dress. And there was one gentleman in there who said, you know, I agree with you that men shouldn't say those things, but, you know, women do wear these short skirts, right? Uh (laughs) So there was this audible gasp in the room and the three women in the group of 20 Uh, looked extremely annoyed, but um, I sided with uh, this one person because I knew that he was the only one uh, voicing it, but there were definitely other people in the room who may not have had such an extreme uh, thought, but were kind of adjacent to that. So it was important for them themselves to talk it out. So I uh, I countered with that and I talked to them and I asked them why and I allowed them to have that conversation. And by the end of it, I'm not sure whether uh, that one person's mind was changed, but I know definitely that the few other people who were kind of in sympathy with him did get to hear... The other point of view did get to understand why it was wrong to say that and were able to internalize the fact that, yes, I think there is a point here.
0: Mm, Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that openness is absolutely key. Um, And my feeling certainly is that the more open um, a group is or society is about Mm -hmm. sexual issues, including things that may seem less politically incorrect, the more you allow people to voice what they're actually thinking and feeling. The more likely mm. you are to be able to create a safe and relaxed environment, that that mm-hmm. the problems arise when you when you portray sex and sexuality as this illicit, dirty, forbidden thing, because mm. you cannot actually you cannot stop people from having sexual feelings. Um, you can only you can only force yes. them to hide it and feel guilty about it, and then I feel that then they're it's more likely to come out in a in an unhealthy way. It it does it does, and uh, it's not just that. It's also uh, in India we
1: we are also operating with a lot of generational conflict as well. And uh, in fact, one of the challenges that a lot of companies are facing is trying to find that balance between providing that safe, respectful work environment and not turning into nannies or parent stand-ins for their Mm, employees. Yeah, yeah. Especially companies that uh, are primarily made up of uh, the Gen Z and uh, people who are young. This is their first or second job. These are young men and women For many of them, this is the first time they've lived away from home independently. They're exploring their whole world. And sex and sexuality is a part of that. So at least uh, some of my clients are very keen that they encourage them to experience life fully. But at the same time, make sure that no one is being exploited or being coerced or being uh, hoodwinked into a value system or an environment that they don't like or are not comfortable with. Mm, mm. For example? For example, the many, many uh, after-work parties. Now, those and those, uh, you know, research tells us that at least in India, they are, uh, th- those are where the maximum number of sexual harassment complaints come from.
0: Oh, I think in the West also, I mean, so many of these complaints have been about people's behavior, for example, at conferences mm-hmm. um, and at conferences that are several day conferences where you stay at a hotel. And right. after the main <clears throat> after the main papers or meetings or whatever are over, you're going to be eating supper together, having some drinks, relaxing. That's when that's when you enter this gray area. Between work yeah. and social life, yeah, and in which some people are, some people abuse that in order to behave badly. That's mm-hmm. that definite. That's for certain. And other people are just confused, mm. or trying their
1: luck. Yes, and uh, the the confused and trying their luck are also a huge uh, proportion of the population in India because. Uh, as you're probably aware, we have uh, zero to negligible uh, sex ed in our education system, mm. and for so many, even now, for so many of these young uh, men and women, the workplace is the first time where they interact as uh, with the other sex fully and you know in a completely in a manner of parity. So. Uh, things that they might have needed to have uh, thought about and discovered at the time when they were maybe sixteen or eighteen, they're now uh, exploring those at twenty-five. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but with that comes a whole other set of problems because there is an expected amount of maturity, but that isn't there because of the system that you've come through. So it's all just one big mess. Mm, yes, I uh,
0: yes, I agree. There's a kind of, com- uh, I mean. Indian men have a reputation of being predatory, and mm-hmm. uh, that's certainly true of some men. But I also feel there's a huge proportion of guys who are just completely clueless that they have I not think clueless. Yeah, they Sorry. have not, You know, um, they have not been dating um, mm-hmm. in the way that you would in the West. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've not also because you know. Young women are are often so sheltered and protected. Uh, mm. They haven't, you know, they haven't socialized with the opposite sex. It's a it's a kind of a whole thing is a mystery to them.
1: Yes, I think uh, clueless is absolutely the perfect word. I've been uh, uh, recently for some reason or the other, I've been watching a whole lot of uh, Indian uh, stand up comics and the abiding theme through those, they seem to think that offensive language is the way to show how cool and edgy they are. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's the kind of thing that you kind you you learn about when you're about 13, 14, where it's very exciting to say these forbidden words, particularly <laughs> in <Italian> polite
0: company. <laughs> yes. and,
1: then, and then you get over it. <laughs> but uh, for a whole generation they are now discovering the uh, you know the seduction of this kind of behavior in public spaces and they think that's what it means
0: mm, yeah because it gets you attention yes
1: it's just it gets you attention it's forbidden it's not done by the good boys and the good girls uh, concept that is still very much uh, at the heart of Indian society so they're pushing those boundaries but they're doing them in this extremely uh if I can put it that way in an extremely immature and childish manner right. without understanding what they're doing and why they're doing it
0: yes yeah, so it's shouting boobs and making fart jokes and things <laughs> exactly exactly
1: <laughs>
0: um yeah I've encountered that too <laughs>
1: I'm I'm sure you have you couldn't have uh, lived here for so long and not seen that and that uh, carries forward into their uh, dynamics with women as well Mm. so Mm. you appear cool and edgy by being extremely open and extremely aggressive about sex and sexuality and you don't realize that therefore you're transgressing boundaries of consent or transgressing boundaries of respect or comfort
0: I don't know if you if you heard about the case, so recently there was a case I think in Australia mm-hmm. um, with a young Indian guy, recent immigrant um, who was um, tried for stalking mm-hmm. and uh, he managed to his lawyer managed to get him off without punishment because he successfully argued that The guy had his only experience of relationships had been from watching Bollywood films and that he genuinely believed that if you just pursued a woman enough, if you wrote her enough messages and hung around and followed her home enough times, she would eventually fall in love with you. Uh, I thought it was quite amusing. I'm rolling my eyes so hard at this, I can't (laughs) tell you. It was, uh, I, this is
1: literally a case that happened, uh, in an investigation I was a part of where, uh, the guy would write, uh, you know, lovelorn emails and poetry to this woman, uh, who worked with him. And she told him to stop, he wouldn't. And he, it just went on and on. And then he took to kind of standing outside her. Uh, office and kind of just staring dreamily, dreamily at her and all those kinds of extremely creepy uh, behaviors. So she finally complained about him and uh, he was uh, sanctioned. It was explained to him, you know, what was wrong. He shouldn't do this, et cetera, et cetera. And while he was leaving, he said, you know, it's it's okay, but I I don't agree that what I've been doing is sexual harassment and we said, okay, listen, we just spent two hours explaining to you why. So please explain why you disagree still. <laughs> and he said, uh, you know, when Shah Rukh Khan does it, he gets the girl, right?
0: <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> so, yeah, there is a lot that we can blame on Bollywood and this uh, Indian culture of romance equals stalking. But uh, I I disagree with the cultural relativism, though, because it is it is a crime even in India now, at least. It wasn't until a few years ago. But you cannot you cannot uh, uh, claim cultural standards here in India and say, hey, I'm just doing what Bollywood
0: uh, screen idols do. I think he just had a very skilled lawyer, this guy.
1: (laughs) Yes. And people are people are oversensitive to cultural differences, right? Sometimes.
0: Yes. Yes, sometimes they are.
1: It's uh, it's interesting, though. It's not just about uh, romance or uh, sexual relations as well. There is this very odd element to Indian culture, which comes from being polite all the time and being non-assertive. And I'm sure you've seen it when you've visited uh, people here. If you go out for dinner to their house and you're offered something, and you say, no, thank you, I'm done. It is very rare that they will just give up at that, you're no, thanks, I'm done. There will be a lot of uh, persuasion and coercion. And why don't you have a little bit more? Or why don't, oh, let's just share this or, oh, come on, one more won't hurt you kind of thing. And you're supposed to demur a little bit and hem and haw, and then finally give in and say, oh, all right, if you insist.
0: Yes, exactly. In and I was almost sick at one, <laughs> one Gujarati household <laughs> where I was invited for lunch, actually. And I forgot to <laughs> take the precaution of not eating for four days beforehand, <laughs> as you yes. almost Always must if you're invited to Gujarati household. But yes, yes. I noticed that also Indians don't uh, they don't say, for example, would you like some tea? They say, sit, have this tea. Like an orbit. Right. Um right. and you know it's it uh, it sounds Uh, It sounds very odd to my British ears to be kind of commanded Mm -hmm. like that, (laughs) to be ordered around Mm -hmm. like that. And of course, it's meant in a nice way, but it's framed as you sit here and you eat this (laughs) and you you do this. And, you know,
1: um, uh, it's a sign of uh, good Indian hospitality (laughs) that you force your guests to overeat. (laughs) Yes.
0: (laughs) <laughs> Until they're almost sick.
1: <laughs> yes. And that translates into, uh, and, and and to some extent, I understand where a lot of these young men are coming from, mm. because again, it, it, you know, it goes back to the good girl concept. If somebody asks you out on a date and you say, oh, yes, absolutely. Let's go. You're being too forward. You're, you're not, not, you're not a good girl. Mm. Yeah. So if somebody asks you out, you will have to say, yeah, no, I don't think so. And then the the person persists and shows that he's very keen on taking you out and then you demur. And then you say, yeah, well, okay, maybe. Mm, mm." So that then in juxtaposition with our modern understanding and acceptance of uh, consent plays at odds And creates all these very bizarre situations.
0: So talking about the bizarre situations, I want to talk a little bit about the Me Too movement Mm -hmm. and the kind of impact it's had in India. But Mm -hmm. I know, first of all, that you have some thoughts on the Me Too movement in uh, America um, and Mm -hmm. on a few of the famous cases. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't know if you'd like to say something about that. First,
1: I, I I don't know that I want to talk about uh, the specific uh, uh, people, but mm-hmm. I think um, you and I agree that the Me Too movement in India and in uh, the West were uh, quite different.
0: Mm. Yes, yes.
1: And I, I will say that, uh, at least for me, when uh, the Me Too movement started in the U.S., um, it came as a little bit of a surprise at the volume of uh, stories that were shared and mm-hmm. the types of stories that were shared because they lay at variance with what I understood of those societies. Mm-hmm. So yes. I, those, those those stories would not have surprised me if they were coming out of India. But mm-hmm. to hear them coming from um, societies where I genuinely believe that Uh, the patriarchy as typically and uh, uh, precisely defined doesn't really exist, although discrimination and sexism do. It was odd to see that so many women were still being coerced or being made uncomfortable and what's more, didn't feel empowered enough to speak up.
0: Mm. I think that it's... So I do think that the examples of actual coercion it's really hard. It's it's always very hard to tell, to base your argument on statistics, because this is the kind of thing where it's very hard to quantify. Mm-hmm. I mean, when we're talking about sexual uh, criminal sexual activity, just to start with the worst examples with rape and assault, mm-hmm. those are things that are by their nature hard to prove, mm-hmm. and therefore also partly as a result of that, and for many other reasons too, um, are almost certainly underreported. And so we just, I feel as though we just don't have accurate information that would enable us to say this number or this proportion of women. We're extrapolating from way too small uh, an amount of information, and we have Hmm. no idea how representative it is. That's true. I think we're taking
1: anecdata and trying to make data out of it.
0: Yeah. um, And I think that we, I mean, we can condemn it without needing to quantify. I think it's always very difficult when arguments are based on statistics, when people say, well, we need to do something about this because one in four women have been sexually assaulted. Hmm. I don't know. Have one in four women been sexually assaulted? I'm actually rather doubtful about that statistic. But mm-hmm. that doesn't change how I feel about sexual assault, and I don't see why it, why, it, why it would. Mm. And we do instinctively know this when we think about things like um, issues affecting trans people, for example. They are a tiny minority of the population, um, mm. but we still feel it's important to uphold their rights, etc. So um, right. these arguments that are based on numbers I think can be I feel as though even sometimes they seem rather scaremongering to me.
1: They are. And they're, in fact, they're sometimes very effectively used as gaslighting as well, which is you end up arguing about whether it actually is one in four or it is one in 40. And really, what is the point of that? Because we can agree that we don't really know that the number is way too high than we as a civilized society should accept. And let's try and fix it.
0: Mm, yeah, yeah i agree i think that what what was more interesting to me in the me too was the me too movement is very amorphous um so i'm talking about the us me mm-hmm. too movement at the moment or the me too movement more generally and um i do want to go on to talk about the ramifications in india but i'll i'll talk about it in the in 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 the us where it began um for now first but right. You know, one of the things about it is that it's a, a speaking out about everything that makes us uncomfortable sexually. Mm-hmm. So that ranges all the way from people like Harvey Weinstein, who should mm-hmm. almost certainly be behind bars, you know, people right. who've committed very serious crimes, to people who have just behaved like assholes, but they've done nothing actually criminal. Aziz
1: Ansari as an example.
0: Aziz Ansari is, I think, the classic example of that. And I feel that on the one hand, there are people trying to force Ansari's behavior into a kind of criminal framework Mm -hmm. to make this behavior out to be assault or rape. And it wasn't assault or rape. There was no violence or threat of violence. If we just, assuming we completely uh, believe the, account of the date that was given by the woman, which I'm going to just take as read for the moment. For the sake of argument, I will believe her account of things completely. Fair. But even looking at her account, I don't see evidence of rape or assault there. But at the same time, I had many people, uh, you know, I encountered many people on Twitter who are who are very critical of the movement because they feel that it undermines rights of the accused because you have these whisper campaigns and people's reputations can get damaged without any evidence. Mm. Um, so they are rightly concerned about that. and th- But they're so concerned about that that they end up defending really quite bad behavior that I think that we should be condemning because that behavior isn't actually criminal. right? So a lot of them seem to slide very easily from Ansari is not a rapist to he did nothing wrong. Yeah, And I feel he, or rather the person who was depicted in this story, definitely did a lot of things wrong. And I, I have been, I myself have been in this position where I felt that the way that a guy was behaving, Hmm. Uh, was it was not severe enough to really merit some kind of legal sanction, or even making it public, or I wasn't sure whether I ought really to be complaining, you know, um, because complaining would make it seem like something more major than it was. But Hmm. at the same time, it was not okay. And I think that 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 has become one of the difficult things about the Me Too movement. And I feel that in the backlash, people have started condoning behavior that I actually think is really asshole behavior <laughs> that you shouldn't be doing. I, um, I agree. But which is I not agree. criminal.
1: I agree. In fact, to add to what you said, uh, it's like we've lost the ability to say, because this is such an emotively charged topic, we've lost the ability to say you know, this behavior is arsehole and it should not be illegal or legislated. Mm, yeah, it's not illegal to just be a dickhead. Exactly. We should be able to talk about it. We should be able to call it out as bad behavior, as rubbish, as a person I definitely don't want to go out with. But that's it. There are... Uh, I. We, we do it in other spheres in our life. We do it, even if I restrict it to the workplace, we do it all the time. We have no confusion there. If somebody is a bad boss, mm, mm. it's perfectly okay to say he's a bad boss. People talk about it. People discuss it in better, progressive, uh, healthier workplaces. There are sanctions for that kind of behavior. People feel the effect of that. But there usually isn't, you know, a legal or a a, a social or a social media sanction to that kind of behavior. Mm, mm. And I don't see why we can't translate exactly that same mindset just because this is about sex sex and gender. I don't see why we can't use the same tools and the same logic to navigate through these situations.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think there are a lot of situations here in which looking at from both sides, from the kind of point of view of the victim, I'll, I'll put in inverted commas, um, from the point of view of the person who is who feels uncomfortable, mm-hmm. I do. I do think that there is, this is changing, but there is a strong instinct that I've noticed many women have to remain in situations where they feel uncomfortable because they can't because they feel like it's not extreme enough to justify sort of leaving the situation mm-hmm. um so they go along with it and that's a mentality i try to dis- discourage so when i'm teaching tango for example right people often tell me things like they were dancing with a guy and they felt that we hold each other very close when we dance argentine tango Um, which is fine Mm -hmm. and it feels really tender and lovely but you know some people have told me they were dancing with a guy and just something about the way he touched them or you know he's instead of just placing his hand somewhere he was kind of moving it a lot which might have been readjusting or it might have been sort of stroking them or his hand was on the side of their boob and that may be just because of the kind of the way that the relative sizes of their body that was a comfortable place to put your hand in the embrace, because that can be, Mm. or because he was kind of reaching for their nipple or whatever, reaching for their boot. Um, And because they didn't know, they just sort of went on dancing with him. And that's where I feel like, okay, your evidence is not strong enough to convict him in some court of law. You don't have to Mm. do some giant naming and shaming of him. Because if if you mm. really don't know whether this was intentional or not, or, you know, what the intention was, um, if it's a gray area like that, but you should feel that you can just decline to dance with him, you know, that you don't need to have the standard of evidence you need to say, this makes me uncomfortable, or this is bad behavior, or um, stop doing this, rethink this is not the same level of evidence that you need for a court of law. Absolutely. On the one hand, that empowers the per, the the woman, I'll say, be, although sometimes, of course, can be men who are the abusees, mm-hmm. but it empowers that person. But at the same time, it allows for, I think, rehabilitation of the other person. If we don't immediately... If we catastrophize too much and we exaggerate about behaviors that are that are bad, but not criminal, Mm. um, then it makes it um, it makes people more reluctant to complain for one thing because Mm. they feel, well, I shouldn't complain about this because it was not. It's not that big a deal. Yeah, it's not that big a deal. This is the argument actually Samuel Johnson made in the eighteenth century about the death penalty. He said, um, right. that the fact that we have a death penalty for stealing actually means that more people get away with stealing because mm-hmm. um, very few people have the heart to hang somebody for, you know, some petty theft."
1: Exactly. In fact, uh, that is something that I hear a lot from women who complain about workplace sexual harassment. One reason that they, there are the usual reasons that they don't come forward, but one reason also is that they feel, I'm not sure
0: that this is behavior that warrants somebody losing his job. Right, right. So we really need to have some rehabilitation Ideas and an influence.
1: understanding of of the different levels at which this can operate, and in fact, this is one of the things. Uh, it's one of the things that I try very hard to push with all my clients, with limited success. Which is that one of my aims is to empower the women themselves to negotiate these boundaries for themselves. Mm. They don't have to always use the formal route of complaints. That is there for them as and when they need it but they need to also be comfortable both with their own skill set and the the supportive environment that if they see behavior they don't like they're able to say hey stop that Mm. with no repercussions on them yeah
0: yeah yeah i think that's i think that's important um
1: And in India, that's uh, particularly challenging because women are expected to, and again, this goes back to our whole extremes of behavior, which is either you're expected to be completely uh, accepting of everything, or then you have to be in full fight mode, and you will be the vengeance and you will, you know, wreak havoc upon everything that comes in your way. There's there's no space for you to negotiate things as an individual and say, here, these are my comfort lines. These are my limits and I'm dictating them. And this is how you stick to them.
0: Mm, yeah. Yeah. I can, I can definitely see that. So there was a case recently. I'm, I'm just moving on to the kind of me too in India. Uh, now I think, Yeah. um, but there was a case recently at SRM university in Tamil Nadu, um, There's there's very recently been a case where um, a worker, a male worker on campus. So I think he is uh, a guy who works in the canteen. Mm -hmm. He is like a busboy. You know, he cleans away plates and and food in the canteen, uneaten food in the canteen. And um, he is allegedly masturbated in the lift in front of two female students. And uh, when Mm. when the students tried to leave the lift, he blocked their way until he had finished masturbating. So this is what, this is the allegation. And I think there is some, I think there is CCTV footage of this, in fact. So um, I'm, Hmm. but I haven't been following or I have been following actually, but I haven't found out whether it's been proven this happened, but let's just assume that this happened because I'm really more interested in people's responses. Right. And the responses in the college, so the vice president has looked very bad by saying on record that um, he thinks that these girls are making a fuss about nothing, <laughs> you know, um, which is extraordinarily insensitive. Yeah,
1: but also yeah.
0: um, some of the responses, including from, from some of the student women themselves, have been that we therefore need to, to not have any male workers on campus. Mm -hmm. And um, so there is this kind of assumption and some people have also been commenting in a way that I think they would not in the West. Some people have been making comments on the clothing of the students in the elevator. So someone asked, were any of them wearing a short skirt? Because if so, this changes the level of culpability of the guy. (laughs) Right. Um, Of course. uh, And um, I think someone else brought up, he said, these girls what can they expect when they smoke and drink in their hostels which is completely yes. irrelevant <laughs> you, you know they weren't even implying that the girls were drunk at that moment or anything like that not that that would make any difference but just that in general they smoke and drink and therefore they could yeah. expect to encounter masturbating men
1: Absolutely. Because that's what that implies. And I don't know if you've heard uh, this other extremely interesting uh, angle to it, which is that, uh, which has been about the class and caste of the guy in
0: question. Oh, yes. Yes, because no one is suggesting, I mean, this college has many male professors. Right. And those who are saying there should be no male workers on campus, none of them are suggesting no male professors. Um, Right. It's just male menial workers so there's a kind of uh snobbery uh to it i'm yeah. not excusing the guy in any way but mm. i i would say that it 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 feels to me as though on the one hand there's this victim blaming of the women who Yes. wear short skirts smoke and drink i'm <laughs> like what century are we in again is this like this sounds yeah. like something somebody would say in about 1924 yeah and on the other hand there is this kind of low opinion of men or of indian men or of indian men of a certain class caste etc yes um Absolutely. that those men will inevitably behave badly around young women and yes i both those stereotypes are very um damaging um and i do feel like um i do feel a slight sense of slightly more extenuating circumstances uh, or or what should i say i feel slightly less condemnatory towards the guy than i think mm-hmm. i would if this happened at a us college and that's mm-hmm. not because of some cultural relativism that I think it's somehow okay to masturbate in front of women if you're Indian or something. Um <laughs> uh, but it's because I feel that that because Indian society is so prudish about mm-hmm. sex, that makes it more likely for people who are kind of going in that direction anyway, to be nudged over a line into these perverted unhealthy expressions of sexuality um that's I maybe I'm I don't I hope I'm putting this in a in a sensitive way but I feel that, that oh absolutely all of that all of that kind of adds to the to the atmosphere and these expectations that people have that this is how guys just naturally behave that also encourages that kind of behavior not in all or most guys, but let's say it's like a a nudge for those who might have done that anyway. In the West, probably won't, but in India, probably yeah. will. Yeah. But also,
1: uh, I think uh, in many ways, this case is quite an example of the 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 complexities uh, that exist in these situations. In India, there is the whole you know last century uh, victim blaming and victim shaming uh, that's going on. There is also the extremely deep-seated caste and class prejudice uh, that's come to the fore. And there is this complete, you know, uh, ignorance or this, uh, you know, not wanting to treat the individuals as individuals, but to pile on their entire caste and gender and Uh, ethnicity and everything as either excuses or reasons to blame Mm,
0: yeah I feel as though in general if you have low expectations of people people will are more likely to live live up to or live up to those yeah yeah
1: yeah and in fact uh, this uh, reminds me of uh, something that I I wanted to bring up earlier when it came up which was the whisper networks that we were talking about and this uh, is one of the reasons I do not set too much credence by those because uh, and and you'll hear this from a lot of the believe all women uh, advocates that these whisper networks are always an extremely good indication of how guilty the person probably is and i have found and this was an actual case that i investigated which was uh, there was a whisper network against the guy who was uh, the respondent in the case but when we investigated the details we found it originated from one woman in the organization and her biggest problem with him was that he his his social status and his social class was not something that she approved of
0: mm.
1: Mm. Uh, there is uh, there, there, his behavior was definitely uh, l- a little I would say borderline inappropriate but more socially inappropriate than sexually inappropriate. But the whole whisper network that that was in place which we heard about from the complainant and then from all her cohorts was that uh, made us believe that oh this person probably is actually indulging in lots and lots of inappropriate things until we discovered yes he'd said something awkward and socially gauche to uh, this woman. And she decided he was just not a good person to have around. And she went around warning all the other women, saying, hey, you know what? Keep away from this guy. He doesn't know how to behave himself around women.
0: Mm, mm. Yeah, I, I mean, I feel that the the whisper networks are very, I think they are useful for the behavior that is being described. So I think there's a mm-hmm. lot of truth in the situations and behaviors that people are describing. So some of them may be fiction, but there are some real behaviors coming out there and some real things that people haven't talked about before. And in that way, as a kind of general reflection on which behaviors do we accept, which do we not, how do we talk about these things, and can we find a good way to express exactly what it is that we dislike about someone like Aziz Ansari behaving the way he does, and why we want that Mm -hmm. kind of thing to end, I think that there's it's there's a usefulness in that way, but it's a very um, two-edged sword when it comes to deciding someone's guilt or innocence, an individual's guilt or innocence. Yes, because we know from non-sexual contexts how unjust accusations can be i mean we all know people on twitter who have been accused of all kinds of heinous things um, Mm -hmm. by insane individuals and Mm -hmm. and then crowds of people have sort of taken this up as a war cry in order to appear savvy or woke or in the know or whatever it is and there's absolutely no truth behind it and I'm not talking about sexual things now, but there's no reason to yeah. believe that sexual accusations would be any different. Hmm. Um, some are true, some are false, and it can be, and it's a, really tough to tell the difference.
1: It really is. In fact, as uh, somebody who is a member of panels or who investigate this, I can tell you that that is absolutely one of the hardest things to determine the the guilt of uh, somebody in situations where typically there is no hard evidence and no witnesses.
0: Yeah, I mean, the worse the, the, the thing is, the less likely there is that there are any witnesses, which I, yes. I think is probably part of why some of the cases have come to, that have been urgently sort of pursued have been so trivial. Mm-hmm. Because people are justifiably angry about much worse things that are happening, but those things are not provable. But it's provable that this guy made an off-color joke or wore a T-shirt with naked women on or whatever it is. uh, Because that happened in public. And Mm. so people seize on that because there are witnesses and they can prove the thing actually happened. But the problem is Mm. the thing that they can prove happened is a tremendously trivial thing
1: it's uh it it's hard but it's uh not exam uh, it's it's not impossible i'll give you an example uh, and this was uh, your standard he said she said case uh, that i was investigating where the accusation was that the guy groped the woman uh, when they were on their way to an offsite and this happened in the middle of the night there were no witnesses people definitely saw them sitting together but The actual groping, obviously, there was no witness. The girl said, the woman said, he did. He said, I did, but it was with consent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How was I to know that she was not okay with it? And this is all a huge conspiracy against me. Now, we didn't want it to devolve into a he said, she said uh, situation, but, but we definitely wanted to get to the bottom of it. So one tool that I used was to try and determine if the guy truly understood uh, consent Mm. because he said she she consented which is the only reason I did it I'm not that kind of guy and she said it was definitely not with my consent now he when we probed further he said she didn't ask me to leave she didn't ask me to go away she didn't say stop it she didn't move my hand away none of that happened so we quizzed him on his understanding of consent in non-sexual situations to see whether the lack of affirmative consent was taken by him as actual consent Mm. Mm. and we discovered that he completely understood the meaning he knew that if he wanted to go and sit next to her until she explicitly invited him and said yes he did not choose to go sit next to her
0: right yeah
1: So he was obviously, you know, gaslighting and trying to say, oh, no, 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 she didn't shove me away and didn't make a scene. So therefore, obviously, it was consensual. So these things are hard, but they can actually be determined. They can be found. You need to get a little creative. Maybe you need to find out a little bit more. There there are usually patterns of behavior that you can find.
0: Yeah, I do think, you know, consent is often portrayed as this very simple to understand concept. And, mm-hmm. um, I, I don't mean to imply that most Indians can't understand this concept, uh, because I certainly encountered many people who can com- totally understand consent, um, right. you know, within India, uh, you know, uh, certainly my, ex- my experience, actually, I won't tell, I won't tell this story. <laughs> it's too personal, <laughs> <laughs> um, but right, let's just long. say, including in sexual situations, it's clear to me that people do understand, I mean, sensitive and well-educated people. And by that, I don't mean necessarily formally educated. I mean people who are mm-hmm. used to dealing with the opposite sex, um, who have a certain um, fluency in just talking to people of the opposite sex and interacting with them. Mm-hmm. Um they understand it completely, but I do feel that society sends a lot of mixed messages. Yes. So on the one yes. hand, there's this general shame around sex. And again, I feel as though it's a bit like when you when you have low expectations of a person, the person can kind of live down to it. It's a, It's as though when you portray sex as this dirty, disgusting thing, people will start being dirty and disgusting about it. Um, mm-hmm, as mm-hmm. opposed to, you need to always give a positive role model. Mm-hmm. If you have no positive role model, no kind of healthy way to express things, then you're much, mm. much more likely to run into problems. Mm. Um, oh, my goodness. Yeah. Somebody is, sorry, someone is smoking pot right outside my window. And I I, <laughs> I might be slightly stoned. Um, <laughs> <laughs> whew, um are you are you
1: flashing back to your birthday here? Yes,
0: a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but also, I think that, uh, you know, marital rape is still legal in India, although I gather yes. there's recently been proposals to change that law. There there have been
1: attempts uh, for a long time, and I don't know when it'll happen, but hopefully we will get that uh, soon. That proposal has been in the works for a long
0: while. Um, But it's quite hard to, you know, I think for many people, um, consent has become rather an abstract issue because if you have an arranged marriage where your parents uh, basically decided on on your partner for you, Mm. you might have had a veto right, but it wasn't a kind of completely free choice that you made. Hmm. And then it's your husband who you are kind of duty bound to obey. And part of that understanding is that you provide sex on request. Yeah. That really blurs. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that the husband is necessarily raping you in some kind of physical violent way, Hmm. Hmm. but you may feel as though it's not really a choice. It's like part of your duties
1: it is absolutely part of the marital uh, duties in fact a lot of people believe that that is part of the transactional nature of marriage
0: so that's also that's this kind of idea that you can give a blanket consent that you can say okay oh, yeah. now oh, yeah. i give consent and it's it kind of continues into in the perpetuity yeah. Yes. yeah yeah
1: so we i mean we're not even talking about consent during acts of
0: uh, intimacy Mm, Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a bridge too far. Right, right. So this is I mean, that I feel like that really blurs the boundaries of what consent is and isn't. And I don't know where I'm going with this. I'll just stop.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, But I think uh, coming back to the the Me Too movement in India in particular, I think this is definitely one of the good things that it's done which is that it's opened up conversations about a lot of these things. And uh, one of the ways that I think it differs a lot from the movement in the US is that in India, it's been mostly about catharsis and about women using their own voices to tell their own stories. The large part of those stories have not been about the naming and shaming. They have been about processing what has happened to them and dealing with their own misplaced shame and guilt. So in that sense, I think it's been it's been really, really good for Indian society. But to whatever extent it applies to Indian society as a whole, at the end of the day, let's not forget, this is an extremely small and extremely elite movement, restricted to social media and maybe to a limited extent, uh, mainstream media. But... I'm hoping that one of the very important things that it does do is that it helps us put in place systemic changes that we need. There are there is a due process. We have a fairly well laid out law against workplace sexual harassment uh, there are there are some problems with it but it does get a whole lot of things right so what I'm hoping this will do is that it will help us fine-tune some of those things that it doesn't get right that it will help us understand where why this uh, due process has failed some women and what can we do to plug those gaps I'm not I'm not at all a fan of the extrajudicial or the extra Uh, process I truly believe that due process is important is vital and it can and does work the law has taken that into account it is in many ways an extremely balanced law in some ways it goes into needless minutiae but by and large I think it has a lot of positives and I'm hoping this me too movement will help us improve the due process and the recourse that is available to women who go through this and uh, not just women actually at the moment the sexual harassment workplace law is only specifically for women but now with the decriminalization of uh homosexuality with the article 377 uh being read down in part yeah i'm hoping yeah i know finally that made me
0: so happy yeah i was like crying tears of happiness for several days i know i
1: know <laughs> So I'm hoping that, you know, uh, this will expand, uh, that they will expand the definition, they will allow more people to be covered under it, and better things will happen.
0: Yeah, I mean, a couple of uh, weaknesses or a couple of problems that I have with the the law as I understand it in Mm -hmm. India, Mm -hmm. for those who probably most of my listeners who are not familiar with it. Um, one of the things is there's a statute of limitations, a three-month statute of limitations for sexual harassment. So not for actual assault or rape, um, but for instances of harassment. Mm. And I can definitely imagine that you might not want to take a case of harassment if you were afraid of repercussions until you had, for example, um, you know, if I were being harassed at work, I might not want to make a complaint about it. Until I had secured another job, mm. um, just looking at this from a practical point of view. Mm. So I think that, that that seems like a very narrow time frame. Mm. Um, and the other thing is that it it seems to be very characteristic in India that people are counter suing for defamation, mm. and that I think is a real is is really going to discourage some people from coming forward
1: Hmm. Hmm. so to your first point yes it's not three months it's actually three plus three months at the discretion of the committee that's investigating Uh, okay but uh but I agree yeah but uh, I agree six months does seem like an arbitrarily too too smaller time frame and I think that needs to be expanded but only by a little bit because there are practical reasons why you cannot just go back five years uh, in the past and investigate a case already with even just uh, six months or when people uh, make complaints after they've quit or just as they're quitting there are very practical challenges to investigating that case if you don't have those people in your organization still How are you going to investigate them as uh, I, as a committee member or the committee, the internal committee, which is constituted under this law, uh, has the powers of a civil court. So it has the uh, the ability to summon people as witnesses to depose before them etc but practically speaking if people if this happened two years ago people have moved on to different jobs different locations different countries in some cases there is only so much that you can you can do in terms of investigation all you will end up with then is a half-baked affair where you haven't talked to or haven't been able to talk to all the people involved and all you will say is okay you know what this was an inconclusive investigation. Mm. So I fully appreciate the reasons for putting a time frame to this. I agree it can be expanded a little bit, but I, I don't think it's practical to go back too far into the past.
0: Mm. Mm.
1: I understand. In fact, uh, there, was, uh, there was a case I was involved in where one of the employees had quit the organization a year ago. We, uh, as a company, decided to investigate even though the statute was over because while the law does specify six months, they, uh, the, the judiciary, the law, the law does expect you to be generous in your interpretation of it and in fact there was a case recently which was heard by a high court where they penalized the company for being too technical in interpreting the statute of limitations as only 6 months and nothing more than that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because they they held the company liable for being uh, for you know reading only the letter of the law and not the spirit of the law
0: mm-hmm.
1: so so even a one year case we did investigate it but we've, there was one witness that, who was uh, crucial to the case. We managed to interview her on Skype. She had moved to another country. We did that one time. And we found there were lots of conflicting statements that she'd made. We needed to cross-examine her. We needed to get more evidence from her. And she was unwilling to have any further interviews with us. And there was absolutely nothing we could do.
0: Mm. And how do you feel about the counter suits? That's the other element of it. So
1: the count, the, the countersuits are separate from the law uh, against uh, workplace sexual harassment. So that law itself does not actually allow for any retaliate reaction. And in fact, I think that's another area that this law can definitely be strengthened in, which is to explicitly state penalties and describe retaliate reactions so that this behavior... Uh, which penalizes a lot of women from making complaints that can be addressed. We do it with our own internal policies and our investigations, and we treat retaliation extremely seriously. But the law does not spell it out in as much detail as I personally would like. But the defamation suits and all, uh, it has the person accused does have the right to the full recourse of the law if he believes he has been wrongfully accused. So in that sense, defamation suits are a part of that. I don't know if they can look at making maybe only civil definition, uh, defamation and not uh, criminal defamation suits as uh, the recourse available. The other thing I think where the law is not very clear about is the appellate authority. So at this point in time, it's very hard to know who people can... Appeal to if they're not satisfied with the outcome of an investigation, other than taking rec- recourse to the standard legal uh, procedures. So, wh- if they set in place a robust appellate authority and mechanism, I think that will take away a lot of this fear and this misuse of the defamation suits.
0: I, I mean, I was wondering with me too in general, I can only think of one person who managed to clear their name. His name, George Takei. Mm-hmm. Uh, who got I, I mean, as 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 listeners right. may know but just to remind you he was accused of sexually assaulting a young a young man many years ago so when he himself was in when I think Takei was in his 20s or early 30s and uh, during the original series run of Star Trek and it was right. said that he had the guy uh, said that Takei had um Drugged, he thought that Take had drugged him, and he had woken up from a from this drugged haze to find that his underwear had been removed, and he was he he didn't know what had happened in the meantime. And mm. it was quite a complicated case, and I I read some quite long accounts of it, and it appears that this so this was not a malicious accusation. But later medical evidence suggested the guy had not been drugged, but he has he was suffering from very low blood pressure and he had blanked out for that reason, not because of anything Take had done to him. And mm-hmm. his his story had changed over the years, but there's no evidence that he was act, that he was consciously lying. It was more that he was right. as he retold the story, he was remembering it differently Uh, you know as people often do when they tell stories I have this argument with my sister all the time as to whether specific things happen when I was young or not because I remember them one way and she is Mm -hmm, adamant mm -hmm. they happened a different way Mm -hmm. so um I I feel that the accusation was not necessarily malicious but it was very definitively proved that um Take, that there was no wrongdoing on Take's part in this that we can, that we know of, but hmm. he is the only person that hmm. I can hmm. think of who's been accused and has afterwards managed to clear his name. It's a very one way street. Um, hmm. Once accusations happen, except right. in the cases where the accusation itself seems like something either quite trivial. So the recent case that was, uh, being publicized on Twitter is an academic who, at a conference, made a joke in lift that alluded to the British, old British comedy series. Are yes, yes, served. yes, yes,
1: yes. <laughs> yeah, ladies lingerie, right? Ladies
0: lingerie, going up. Oh, Mrs. Slocum, I'm free. Mm. Sorry, I'm going on a nostalgia trip there for a second because I I loved that series when I was growing up.
1: I do watch it uh, every once in a while just uh, just for the
0: nostalgia trip. So he made some sort of awkward joke about the ladies' lingerie department and uh, someone complained about this. Mm-hmm. And it's not so much the complaint that is the problem because they're always going to be censorious, overly sensitive people. The problem is right. that the association where the conference had taken place have officially reprimanded him or something place some black mm. mark on his record because of this joke mm. which nobody else in the lift objected to just this one person and who is, I believe
1: they asked him to apologize and, uh, and he, he refused no. to do yes, that I'm so yes I, I believe that was the case yeah <laughs> never
0: yeah. apologize when you haven't actually done anything wrong um, <laughs> so except for cases like that where the where people are poo-pooing the accusation itself I don't know if anybody who's come out of this with reputation intact. Hmm. Although I guess some people have continued to have careers, etc. People have just ignored it. So perhaps in that sense, they have. But I don't know of anyone who's actually been able to go back and prove that they did not do the thing they've been accused of doing.
1: I, those are also uh, hard. I don't know in a lot of cases whether any investigations were also ever made and people may not always have... Uh, Uh, evidence to show that they did not I believe Lawrence Krauss who was one of one of the people in as a part of the whole Me Too uh, movement in the US he did have a fairly detailed hearing he was found guilty I think and that falls under their Title IX investigations which is a, a whole different thing and he came back with more rebuttals to that but i think for most people that it, he is pretty much guilty of all and more that he was accused of mm, mm. and i kind of agree to to a very limited extent that it, the individuals are not really the the point the point is whether these are precedents that are good or bad precedents i'm very empathetic to the view that a lot of uh, the due process particularly the way it exists in uh, some places is, is is not the best course of action but I think uh, in India for example at least the way the law is spelled out there are these are things that they've taken care of there is uh, definitely principles of natural justice that are meant to apply so if someone is accused of uh, something he has the right to be given that complaint in writing in fact the law spells it out in excruciating detail that the complaint has to be in six copies one of those copies has to be given to uh, the guy with Within 10 days and then he has to respond within 10 days in writing with his own uh, rebuttal and his list of witnesses etc etc but keeping in mind how hard this is for women generally speaking the law provides what they call interim relief for women when they make the complaint so you are entitled to leave for the duration of uh, the investigation you don't have to come into work you are entitled to not report to the person if uh, he is the respondent. You're entitled to not report to him. And in some cases, what we do is that we actually put the respondent on leave instead of the complainant so that there is no conflict of interest. There is no retali- there is no possibility of retaliatory action, that uh, the investigation can proceed in as fair a manner as possible.
0: Mm. So the law mm.
1: provides for that, which I think is a wonderful thing. The other really good thing, in my opinion, that the law does is that it does not allow legal representation on either side. Mm. So it takes away a lot of the power dynamic. You would assume that in typical cases where the uh, respondent is a more senior person, therefore will have more access to resources such as legal counsel, etc., that doesn't impact how the case investigation goes.
0: Right. Yeah, I think that's excellent.
1: The other uh, thing also that the law spells out is that to whatever extent possible, the Complainant and the respondent or rather the respondent should not confront the complainant. So a lot of these stories that you hear about intimidation, about retaliatory action are automatically avoided because of that. We just don't, as a matter of course, put them in the same room together and allow one to badger the other when there are genuine questions of, uh, you know, facts in either party's Uh, case we put the uh, questions to them we do the cross-questioning on behalf of the other person
0: Mm, yeah that is good i'm really i'm quite impressed by the transparency of the process or the way the Mm -hmm. process has been has been designed in india by contrast with i think one of the worst uh sort of not offshoots the me too movements but the worst ways of handling these kinds of Issues which is the Title IX courts at yeah. universities. Yeah, yeah. When Title IX hearings, if you're accused, you don't get to know who your accusers are or even what the charge is mm-hmm. against mm-hmm. you, which is just extraordinary. I think that that has, um, in mean, Title IX, uh, maybe I won't get into Title IX in too much detail here, but to give an example of just how Kafkaesque things can be, more than one person has most has been hauled up under a Title IX investigation for criticizing Title IX itself. Yes, yes. So Laura Kipnis... Um, I was, was about to
1: say, I think, yeah, Laura Kipnis is the one that immediately comes to mind.
0: Yes, she was She was investigated under Title IX, invest, um, by Title IX court or whatever the official term is, committee, I guess, for having written an article critical of Title IX, which supposedly yeah. in itself created a hostile atmosphere. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, that is yeah. just extraordinary. Yeah yeah, <laughs> um, absolutely extraordinary. And I feel as though we do there there is something about cases which involve sexual matters, which causes us to lose our minds. <laughs> yes. I mean, in every direction, both um, yes. we're both more likely to blame victims in a way that we don't tend to with other crimes. Mm-hmm. We're more likely to misinterpret advice as victim blaming, which we don't with other crimes. So if I tell mm-hmm. people, for example, you know, I often tell visitors to Buenos Aires that, you know, we have a lot of light-fingered people here in Argentina. Right. and you might want to don't hold your mobile phone loosely in your hand as you're walking along the road, for example, Mm. keep Mm. it zipped in your bag. And, you know, if you need to take it out, take it out for a second, but don't walk along casually kind of holding it because Mm. people literally run by and snatch it out of your hand. Not often. This is not an everyday occurrence, but it may happen to you, especially if you look like a foreigner, you look a bit distracted and clueless. Mm you know there are opportunists who will run up and just snatch it straight out of your hand and run off and you know don't if you don't just hang your bag casually over the back of your chair when you're sitting in a cafe secure your bag to the chair or wear it around your shoulders hmm. so that uh you know you don't otherwise sometimes not often you know i've seen this only I've witnessed this personally only twice in 10 years, but I've also known many people who've had this happen to them. People may drive by in a motorbike, and the passenger will just, on the motor, on the back of the motorbike, will just reach out and take your bag from off the chair. Right. Hanging, you know, there on the street. And I often tell people this, and almost nobody has ever taken this as a kind of victim blaming. Hmm. Um if somebody's handbag is actually snatched, I'm really um sympathetic to that. I'm really appalled and sorry that happened to them here. I think that's as a you know a terrible thing for our reputation as a city and as a country mm. and I have complete sympathy with them because it's not even if I've warned them and they didn't heed the warning at that moment i don't it's not part of human nature to exercise constant vigilance. Right, you know, you can't be blamed for letting your de- relaxing your defenses for a second and being taken advantage of. That right. is not your fault, but no one sees that as victim blaming. Mm. Whereas, even quite sensible advice like don't get blackout out drunk with people you mm. don't know. I mean, not mm. just don't drink, but don't actually get unconscious with people you don't know, mm. or don't mm. accept a lift home from someone you don't know. Or don't get into Mm. an unmarked taxi cab. Hmm. You know, that kind of advice is seen as victim blaming very quickly in the case of sexual assault. Right. And it's really no different in nature from my telling people to attach their handbags to their chair. Exactly. And and it's advice that I'm giving to try to prevent the thing from happening. It's not something I'm going to hold against you after the crime has actually taken place.
1: Yes uh, that happens and when that happens that is absolutely victim blaming but, Exactly
0: Yeah if i were so, to say to you well you deserve to have your handbag taken because you should have attached it or whatever exactly. that is victim blaming and i would not do that Yeah but so saying
1: we, be careful is not is not victim blaming
0: Yeah so we have actual victim blaming happening in a way that we don't have with other crimes we have people paranoid about advice which they see as victim blaming which isn't which we don't have with Uh other crimes we Uh have people not respecting due process you know believe believe women believe Uh victims blindly Uh even though there's people lie about everything so there's no reason to believe that they would not also lie about this we see exactly all of our common sense intuitions fly out of the window when sexual crimes are involved and i understand in a way because the legal system is really ill-equipped to deal with this
1: i i completely understand the genesis of the believe her sentiment because for too long the the very public reaction to any such accusations was always either she asked for it or she's lying about it. Mm. So this is clearly in response to that. But I'm assuming that, you know, believe her sounds better as a hashtag. But we do it all the time in our in our investigation panels, the internal committee, as, as it's called, we We fully and completely support anyone who makes a complaint without automatically assuming that every word that she tells us is gospel truth. And the same for the respondent. We hear him out sympathetically. Unless he gives us reason to question his attitude, but we hear him out sympathetically. We assume that what he's telling us is also true. And then we determine where the actual truth lies. It's not that hard. We do it day in and day out. We don't disrespect either of them. We provide supportive environments to both of them. And we arrive at the truth as far as as far as far possible.
0: Yeah, yeah. Geeta, I think maybe we should uh, draw this to a close. So I want to ask, can you talk a little bit about how you think things in India might develop in the future? What your hopes are for India as far as issues to do with sexual harassment and treatment of women are concerned? So not talking about actual assault and rape necessarily, but just general interactions and what your hopes are and what your um beliefs are and what you feel might be able to change in the future and and how
1: so this
0: is definitely
1: one of the things that i'm hoping that the me too movement in india will will catalyze which is making small systemic shifts that will allow us to make the change uh, that we need, and we need to remember that that change has to be multifold. we can 't just put a wonderful law in place and say, "Hey, that takes care of the problem it hasn 't done that with our anti dowry laws it hasn 't done that with our female feticide laws because this is as much a societal problem as it is a legal problem as it is a personal dynamics problem as it is a cultural problem. so our solutions have to be multimodal they have to be they have to include procedural and legal changes but they also have to include societal shifts societal attitudes and these conversations will hopefully lead to that i'm hoping they are sustainable i don't know how far they will be but i'm hoping uh, small shifts will start to happen i think a large part of the change will come from as it typically does, will come from the women themselves demanding better solutions. When, if women in the workplace start asking for better, healthier workplace environments, if they start demanding transparency in how uh, sexual harassment is handled, companies at the end of the day are systems. They seek to avoid turbulence at all costs. It's, uh, you know, it's it's quite fashionable to say, oh, you know, perpetrators are always protected because patriarchy and uh, sexism, etc. And that's true in part. But the system is always seeking to protect itself. So when the costs of that protection become high, the system will be responsive to changing who it protects and how. And those are the changes that we
0: need. Well, we saw that, I think, a little bit in the case of, um, oh, what's his name? Uh, The guy, the Flipkart CEO? Yes, uh, Bansal. Uh, Bini Bini Bansal. Bini Bini Bansal. Yeah. um, Walmart bought Flipkart. Yes. Um, So I think Flipkart India is now part of Walmart. And the first thing they did was launch, one of the first things they did was launch an investigation into his behavior because he's been accused of sexual harassment. I don't know the details of that at all. And quite shortly after that, he resigned and was possibly encouraged to resign, yes. um, should we say? Yes. So, you know, clearly for Walmart, their priority is protecting their global brand. Yeah. And if they feel that someone, even a billionaire CEO, is a liability to that brand. Yeah. Then that person is, you know, not irreplaceable.
1: Yeah. Uh, in uh, this case, it's not very relevant to the point we are making. But in this case, it wasn't exactly sexual harassment. I think it was the way in which he had handled a consensual relationship that he'd had with an ex-employee, and there was some, uh, you know, physical intimidation involved, not directly by him, by but by an agency that he had hired to negotiate with her, etc. So that was a whole messy thing. And there's corporate politics involved as well. But another uh, example of that is Fanish Murthy, who was asked to uh, step down, who had been found guilty. He used to be at emphasis earlier. He'd been found guilty of sexual harassment. When he moved on from there at his next position, similar charges occurred. And he was asked to step down then because it was seen as, you know, a violation of their uh, disclosure and their uh, anti-harassment policies. So the individuals, while they're important in that sense, it's the way these uh, systems will change that will provide better protection for everyone who works there.
0: What do you see happening in India in the future? Do you think that the position of women will change, attitudes towards women will change? They will, probably not at
1: the pace we'd like, or uh, actually, let me rephrase that. We'll again see a few extremes because in, in this whole conversation, we haven't you know talked at all about the whole unorganized sector where women work, uh, the domestic uh, sector where women work, who are by law mm, protected yeah. against sexual harassment. But the mechanisms that should be in place for that, the information, the knowledge, the education that should be in place for that is is non-existent. So again, we'll have to hope that there will be some kind of trickle down. It'll start with this urban elite and it will trickle down into other areas of employment. So some things will change very rapidly. You'll see companies that will be very responsive, that will be very progressive and will actually have fairly healthy workplace environments. And you can see that already in some companies. Another uh, thing that we didn't talk about, which is how the whole uh, hierarchical and power dynamic uh, system comes into play even in sexual harassment. I found an extremely high correlation between workplace harassment and sexual harassment so particularly in supervisory positions or managerial possession, positions where people have been accused of sexual harassment we've then gone on to find that there have been other workplace abuse and workplace misconduct and uh, those kinds mm-hmm. of uh, stories mm-hmm. that are, so, so those are uh, correlated and if companies start trying to clean up their overall work culture this will be as a fallout of that will get addressed to some extent
0: yeah yeah
1: so we'll we'll hopefully get there maybe not at the pace we'd like or at the pace we deserve but i i think i'm cautiously optimistic
0: good i think that's an excellent place to end thank you so much gita <laughs> it's been a pleasure oh the pleasure has been all mine <laughs> You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for ARIO magazine. ARIO is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant, edited by Helen Pluckrose, with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At ARIO, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both Ario and 2 for T are entirely audience supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for Ario, A-R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and 2 for T. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. plus. By becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. Two for Tea is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.